She's Robin. She's Alex. And this is Coworkers Killing Time. And here we talk about everything. Enjoy! everybody welcome to episode 24 of co-workers killing time i guess this episode should just be co-worker killing time because robin is off this week i am recording this episode solo but stick around i promise it's really good and worth your while i've been looking forward to recording this true crime episode for a while probably ever since we started the podcast those who don't know, I am from Ellington, Connecticut, and this is one of the biggest things to ever happen in our town. It happened seven years ago now, well, almost seven years, uh, in December of 2015. And the craziest thing is that it is now going to trial this year. So the fact that there's been such a long period of no justice for the victim of this crime and that it's taken this long, really spurned my interest in this. Uh, And then I did mention in the last episode that one of our old co-workers was the neighbor to this family. So we were always kind of on the fringe of this, but knew what was going on. So I really wanted to bring light to it in that way and really talk about Connie and justice for her rather than focusing on Rick. So the name of this episode is True Crime Tuesday, The Murder of Connie Debate, where usually we name the episodes whoever the killer is. But I think it's really important to glorify the victim in this story and get her the justice that she deserves. So let's get into the case. On December 23rd, 2015, most people are anticipating the upcoming Christmas holiday, but for the DeBate family of Ellington, Connecticut, life would never be the same. Connecticut State Police arrived to their house to a security alarm going off and a report that a masked assailant was spotted running from the house. When they entered the house, Richard DeBate, or Rick, was found tied to a metal folding chair. His wife, Connie, was found in their basement. She had been shot and killed. And just note, the murder weapon was a handgun that Rick DeBate had purchased pretty recently before that. And it was a known fact that Connie was not a big fan of guns and really didn't want them in their house. And then, lo and behold, he has a gun, and that's what she ended up being murdered with. So that's the first, like, hmm, that's kind of weird coincidence. So when speaking with the police, Rick had stated that a masked man broke into the couple's home, restrained him by the wrists, and then tied him to the metal folding chair, and then chased 39-year-old Connie to the basement, where she was then shot and killed. Debate claimed the man broke in at the time their alarm system had been going off, 10-11 a.m., He also claimed that he had burned the intruder with a torch and therefore the intruder ran away, which also seems very suspicious. The couple's two young sons, who were nine and six at the time, were at school and police immediately became suspicious of Rick. While investigating the crime scene, police dogs could find no other scent but his outside of their home. There was no clear sign of entry for the alleged murderer slash intruder to get into the house, and the house was very neat and clean, where Rick was trying to tell the police there had been this massive struggle between him and the intruder, and he was trying to save Connie, and we'll get to that in the timeline, but 
the house showed no signs of that. So they thought that was kind of weird. The next logical avenue for the police was to ask about their marriage issues, to which Rick said yes and no. The investigation quickly revealed to police that debate had been having an affair and the woman was now 10 weeks pregnant. He would eventually admit that this was a friend of his from high school and that they had actually been having an affair and she became pregnant and it was a surprise. But in the beginning, that's not what he claimed. He claimed that he and Connie had wanted a baby or his friend had wanted a baby. There was two different reports on that. So I I don't know if his story changed or if the reporting was wrong. But he did say that one of them wanted a baby and they had to use untraditional methods. I put that in air quotes, but you can't see me. So just saying to achieve their goal of having a baby, and that Connie knew all about this, and he and Connie were going to co-parent the baby with his friend. Text message evidence also determined this to be untrue. There was text messages between DeBate and his girlfriend saying that he was going to get a divorce. There was text messages between him and Connie that proved that that was not true, and we will get into that later as well. It was later discovered that he was having two extramarital affairs at the time of the murder and that the one woman had become pregnant. So in all the reporting I've seen, the mistress's names have been kept private to value their privacy and not get them involved in this. But I do believe that they are testifying at least one in the upcoming trial based off of trial documents that have been obtained I am in a Facebook group called Justice for Connie Margata Debate. So if you are interested in that, you can join that group to get more information there. And it is run by my sister-in-law. So that's a nice little bonus. But there is a lot of information in there. And this has been so helpful in researching this case. When police searched through the text message evidence found on Rick and Connie Debate's phones, they found some pretty damning evidence. And the text messages had revealed that he was texting his pregnant mistress saying the couple was going through a slow-moving divorce. However, text messages from that time also showed photos of a lingerie-clad Connie saying, I'm ready for you, big boy. While there was no impending divorce happening, the marriage was struggling between the infidelities and the money issues they were struggling. Found in the notes section of Connie's phone was a note that was written in 2014 with a list of reasons why she wanted a divorce. The list had entries that said Rick had taken money from a lot of accounts that don't belong to him. He was uncaring to her. He was a bad parent, etc., etc. Nothing glowing in the reports about Rick and how Connie felt about their marriage. I will also add along the lines of money that it was discovered by police days after Connie's death, Rick tried to cash in her over $400,000 life insurance policy. So that's kind of strange when you are grieving the death of your wife, that your number one concern is making sure that that life insurance policy is cashed in right away. Weird. He had also taken out a credit card without his wife's knowledge to buy items for his girlfriend and spent over twelve. $1,200 at a Tolland, Connecticut strip club. So Tolland is the town I grew up in. 
It is a small town, so shout out to the Electric Blue, which is the strip club there. And I'm honestly shocked that there is a strip club in this town because, like I said, it's a very small town. We have one grocery store, a few gas stations, and then, for some reason, a strip club. Like, the Dunkin' Donuts in our town just got a drive through this year, but we have a strip club. Okay, so they're very small towns. Both Ellington, where the crime took place, and Holland, which is a neighboring town. With this info and new evidence coming to light, an arrest warrant was issued for Rick in April 2017. The new evidence gained the case national attention, and it became known as the Fitbit murder. I actually mentioned this in our last episode when I was talking about covering this, so you may recognize that name. Why was it called that? Well, Connie's Fitbit had tracked her moving an hour after Rick claimed that the intruder had killed her. The arrest warrant was issued and charged him with murder, tampering with evidence, and false statements. So now we are going to read a timeline of events, which I had found on the Hartford Currents website, of everything that happened that day and led up to the arrest. So the Hartford Current is our local newspaper. So Richard DeBate told detectives that on the morning of December 23rd, after he took his sons to the bus stop, he left for work at a Bloomfield-based computer company at about 8.30 a.m. His wife was still home getting ready for her spinning class at the YMCA. Her Fitbit indicates that she likely left for the nine-minute drive to the facility around 8.46. Richard DeBate said he was driving for about five minutes when he got an alert on his cell phone that the alarm back home had been activated, meaning their security alarm. And that cannot possibly be true, but we'll get to that. DeBate said he sat at the side of nearby Reeves Road for five minutes, emailing his boss and checking the alarm status before turning around to go home. He estimates that he got back to Birchview Road at about 9 a.m. Surveillance cameras from the parking lot of the YMCA show Connie arriving at 8.53. She sent a message from her phone via Facebook to a psychotherapist requesting an appointment to be hypnotized because there was a lot going on right now. Quote, Richard DeBate said that when he got home, he had heard a noise upstairs and thought it might be one of the family's cats until he got upstairs and saw a masked man about six foot two and stocky with a Vin Diesel voice looking through things in a walk-in closet. As they started to fight, again, this is where police said they were confused because he states that they got into an altercation and police saw no evidence of this. DeBate said he heard his wife come home and enter through the garage door into the house. He yelled for her to run. DeBate said the man incapacitated him by using pressure points on his wrist and then ran downstairs after his wife, who was headed to the basement. He chased after him and saw the man about five feet away from his wife, but as he approached, a gunshot went off, disorientating him. He said the intruder then approached him and once again did some sort of pressure point thing to his wrist and neck, and then started tying him to the metal chair. And I have a question about this because... A metal folding chair is not really a strong device to be tied to, especially when you're a full-grown man. I feel like you could stand up at the very least inside of a chair, but that's just my own thoughts. He said the man then grabbed DeBate's own toolbox and began burning him with a torch, put something around his neck that made it hard to swallow, and started poking him with a box cutter. DeBate said he used his right arm, which hadn't been tied to the chair, which again, what? 
how are you incapacitated to this chair? Again, it's a metal folding chair and only one of your arms is tied. This also makes it seem like you did this to yourself. You tied yourself to the chair. To direct the torch to the intruder's face, setting his mask on fire and sending him running out of the basement. Debate said he then crawled up the stairs, still partially tied to the chair, pressed the panic button on his alarm and hurled himself up to the stovetop to get his cell phone and call 911. So, armed with his explanation of what happened that morning, police set about obtaining search warrants to get cell phone records for the couple, computer records for his laptop, Facebook records for both of them, his girlfriend, because they knew about her very quickly, text messages, and Fitbit records for Connie DeBate. The records show Richard and Connie's activities in the hour after Richard DeBate told the police he was confronted by the intruder and that she was killed. So again, he told them that she was dead, but they were clearly still doing things. So at 9.04, he sent an email to his boss indicating he would be late to work. And this is a red flag because it was sent from his laptop in their home and not from the side of Reeves Road, as he had previously said earlier in the timeline. At 9.18, he visited the website of the Indian Valley YMCA to view the group's exercise schedule. That's weird since his wife was going there to exercise. Two minutes later, he searched the ESPN website for the Mike and Mike show, the last time he used the computer that morning. So again, he's not driving to work at this time. At 9.18, Connie called someone from her cell phone after surveillance cameras indicated she had left the YMCA. The call lasted for three minutes and 23 seconds. At 9.23, Connie's Fitbit was idle for nine minutes while she drive home from the YMCA, became active again at the same time alarm records show the garage door opening at their home. State police believe this is the time when she arrived home. From 9.40 to 9.46, she posted two videos on Facebook using her iPhone and then posted a message to her friend through Facebook. The IP address is assigned to the couple's house, so she was at her house doing things between 9.40 and 9.46. At 10.05 a.m., Connie DeBate's Fitbit registers its last movement. Between the time she came home and when it stopped, she moved a distance of 1,217 feet inside the house. At 10.11 a.m., the panic alarm for the security system is activated from Richard DeBate's keychain. It is the only time the alarm went off that that morning, although debate had said that he had gotten an alarm notification earlier while he was supposedly driving to work. At 10.16, the state police barracks in Tolland received a 911 call from the alarm company. Richard DeBate called 911 himself at 10.20. One friend of County DeBate told the Hartford Current that she believes her friend loved Richard DeBate. In text messages, state police obtained between the couple, and I already talked about this a little bit, Connie DeBate calls her husband Sweet Pea and Buttercup. He tells her he loves her numerous times. The tone was decidedly different the day before she was killed, records show. And I also want to say that the text messages between him and his girlfriend were very lovey-dovey, and he was constantly telling her that they were not trying to work on their marriage, and it later came out during court testimony and interviews with police that he said they actively were trying to work on their marriage and his girlfriend didn't know about that. So this is interesting as well. Connie DeBate tells him she has spent two hours on the phone with Comcast arguing about a cable bill that doubled because he had ordered sports channels to the package. She she accuses him of lying 
and that she once again had to clean up his mess. Which I will say, a heated text message between two married people over a bill being discrepancied is not out of the realm of possibility, but with all of the other evidence mounting up against this guy, this really doesn't make a big difference in the scheme of things. So if they're trying to say that this proves that it was just a squabble and nothing really happened. I don't see it like that. I just think that's a fight between two people who have pretty much had it with each other and something mundane happens and it's the tipping point. Not for the murder, but just for their relationship wasn't great and nothing his defense can do or say is going to prove that it was. Her last text to him said, great day off and merry bleep Christmas. So that's really interesting. The whole thing is pretty crazy. uh, And that is the timeline from the Hartford Current. So Richard DeBate has been free on a $1 million bond after pleading not guilty. And this may have you wondering where the money came from for this $1 million bond if he was so desperate for money after her death that he was trying to cash in her life insurance. He had used their home at 7 Birchview Drive in Ellington, along with the homes of several family members to help secure his release on the $1 million bond that the judge set for him following his arrest in the murder after a 16-month investigation by state police. The home accounted for $200,000 of the $1 million bond, and debate sought to replace it with a surety bond from a bail bondsman, according to the motion that he and his lawyers filed in the matter before the hearing. According to online property records, the Birchview home currently is appraised at and was co-owned by DeBate and his wife, with the couple having bought it in 2006. But in the months following Richard DeBate's arrest and his wife's murder, Connie's ownership of the home switched to her estate, which is run by her sister, Marilee Shaw. She's the executor of the estate. Shaw and DeBate made a joint request to list the home for sale in October, and Ellington probate judge Eliza Bartlett granted the request at that time. The property was initially listed for sale for $399,500 through Century 21 Classic Homes, and it's now listed for a reduced price of $349,500. On Tuesday during a hearing in Ellington Probate Court located at Vernon Town Hall, Bartlett ruled that Wells Fargo Bank, which is holding the mortgage on the Birchview home, can move forward with foreclosing on this property as the mortgage is now in default, according to a motion filed by the bank. And of course, it's in default, because when you have legal issues like this, and you already had money troubles, there's no way you're going to be able to pay a mortgage as well for a house that I'm sure you were behind on, because you had massive money problems. And I will say allegedly to that, because I don't know that that's true. But I'm just guessing that if he had money problems before all of this, I don't think a costly, lengthy legal battle is going to help any of that. So allegedly, that's why they were in foreclosure on the house. There was multiple showings of the property, but no offers were made and the house did not sell. Jury selection in his trial initially began and was selected in 2020, but the courts had to close due to the coronavirus pandemic. So this year, jury selection began in 2022, and the trial date is set for April 5th. 
I will note that the same article I was reading the facts about his bonding from, from the Journal Enquirer, also a Connecticut newspaper, states that the trial is set to start in April, but there will be several motions being filed to move the trial to a different location, a different courthouse, and also to postpone it. So we will see what happens with that. And if it does move forward on April 5th, as scheduled, I'm hoping that it does, and that we finally get to see some sort of justice, and he gets what he deserves for this crime rather than walking free. We will be following this case very closely and we will have a part two once there is more details to the case and what is going on with the case itself. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know it was pretty short and sweet, but I don't have anybody here to ask questions and give me commentary. So if you liked this episode, be sure to like our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. I will have photos of Richard, Connie, and his arrest warrant on our Instagram page. You can follow us at Coworkers Killing Time. You can follow us on Facebook by searching Coworkers Killing Time Podcast. And there you can see all of our pictures from Instagram, but also listen to all of our episodes. If you don't have a podcasting app, you can follow us on Patreon by searching Coworkers Killing Time and get bonus content and support the show that way. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week with both coworkers here, Killing Time. Thanks, guys. Bye.